continuing on our series today, Where is God When Life Hurts? And uh, if you have your Bibles there, we're going to be looking at uh, a few verses in Romans chapter 8, starting to read from verse 18. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And if you've not got Bibles with you, the words will be up on screen in a moment's time. Romans 8, verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we all know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. As I say, this is the third talk in the series, Where is God When Life Hurts?, which I believe is the greatest single challenge to us as Christians. A few weeks ago, we watched together that short video by Stephen Fry, who angrily denounced the God that he claims doesn't exist, and calling that God capricious, mean-minded, and stupid. And that video went viral. Within two weeks, it had five million views. To be fair to Stephen Fry, he, I believe, is only asking the questions that people, millions of people down through the centuries have asked. Millions of people in our world today are asking. But with Stephen Fry, you know, he has a particular academic brilliance and an eloquence which is uh, very, very articulate. Probably the number one question that's being asked around today in terms of God is this question of suffering. I believe that your friends, your non-Christian friends, your work colleagues, those uh, who are not Christians in your families, they're asking this question. And it may be that they have voiced this in recent times to you, wondering how on earth a God of love, a God who created this world good, could allow these things to happen. And therefore, that makes this particular series uh, particularly relevant, I, I, I would think. The words, why God, have often been on my lips too, and especially this week, we've all witnessed the devastating disaster in Nepal. 7.8 on the Richter scale, that earthquake which was just outside Kathmandu in that very vulnerable country, Nepal. And it has smashed the infrastructure of the country with, I think it's uh, over 6,000. What's the latest figures? Does anybody know? 10,000. 
my word. 10,000 people have been declared dead. And it seems as if the, the numbers are rising. So in my talk this morning, I'm not going to focus our thoughts generally on suffering, but on God and the, the so-called natural disasters. You know, many people have said, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, how could he allow this to happen? Why is there so much loss of life? And perhaps the, the question more specific of all is, where was God in Nepal? But before we open our hearts and minds this morning to this, is, and it's an incredibly difficult subject, I would like us to do two things. I'd like us to pray, first of all, and then I would like to just recap over the first couple of studies so that we can understand this morning within the context of what we've already studied. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we know that at this time there are many, many questions. We have asked many questions this week. And at this time, Lord, we just bring to you now the people of Nepal. Lord, we pray for those who have been injured and for those who have been bereaved. We pray, Lord, in, the, in, in their time of desperation, they will not give up hope, but they will find their hope in the God who loves them so much. Dear Lord, we know that you mourn with those who mourn and that you suffer with those who suffer. Lord, we also pray for the international agencies that they will have success in getting to the places where people need you most, need, need, need them most. And we pray, Lord, also for the the plight of a nation that as we look on our hearts might be touched throughout the world in this church family and we pray Lord that there will be an abundance of international aid and that Lord you will give the people of that country and the agencies great wisdom to use it well Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Just a quick recap. I've said in the um, earlier studies that we'll be attempting in a number of weeks to build up a big picture. Um, it's a little bit like putting jigsaw pieces together. You have lots of individual big jigsaw pieces to form the big picture. And the more jigsaw pieces that you have, the clearer the picture will become. But I've confessed uh, some weeks ago that on this subject of suffering and hardship, we simply don't have all the jigsaw pieces. We have no perfect answer to this problem of suffering. Not even the Apostle Paul, as I said last time. The Apostle Paul, who has attributed to him 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, not even Paul said that his knowledge was anything other than partial and incomplete. And he said that one day when Christ returns, that he will, and we will, know all things. But until that time, there is that element of mystery, and we don't know all things. Last time, or the time before perhaps, I said that there are also different approaches to uh, this question of suffering. There's a philosophical approach, 
which largely focuses on the existence of evil in the world. And where did that come from in a world which is created by a God who is good? There's the theological uh, approach, which focuses on the great themes of the scriptures, speaking of the love of God and the justice of God, that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. There's the biblical approach, which focuses on certain Bible passages and texts, seeking to understand what the Bible is actually telling us at this time in, on, over the subject of suffering. There's a pastoral approach, which focuses on making sense of pain and suffering that we all face personally. There's also the economic approach, which focuses on how to resolve suffering which is caused by extreme poverty in our world. And with all of those five approaches, I'm going to be dipping in and out of them over the length of this series. Two studies ago, we looked and we considered the first jigsaw piece. And that jigsaw piece was the jigsaw piece of human freedom. And we said then that most of the suffering that we have in the world is caused by human freedom. That God himself had a choice. He had the choice whether to give humans the ability to choose or not. He could have made us robots. He could have programmed us always to do what he desired, always to love him. But by giving, him, giving us free choice, there was also the possibility that we would use our human freedom to do our own thing, to turn our backs on him, to choose instead of to love him and to do good, to choose to use that free will to abuse and to kidnap and to murder and to do all the things that we, we often do. When God gives us freedom of choice, he does so in a hands-off way. Last time in our, our study, we also approached this uh, subject less philosophically and more biblically and pastorally. We studied how Jesus... Uh, dealt with suffering in his own day, or the question of suffering, should I say. We learned that Jesus uh, dismissed the idea that suffering and tragedy are caused by the sins of those who were suffering. And that was a common belief held by people in first century um, Jewish culture. It was also noteworthy that Jesus simply refused to be drawn into the cause of Suffering. Why did certain people die? Was it God's fault? Whose fault was it? And so forth. Rather, we can see from the answers that Jesus gives that he was far more concerned, not so much with the cause, but the response. Not so much the question why, but the question to what end. And I think we may even come back to that a little bit later this morning. Now, Sorry, there's no way I can do justice to two whole talks in just two minutes. And if you've missed some of that stuff and you're interested in looking further into this, then those uh, talks are on podcast on our website. This morning's subject is, where was God in Nepal? And I'm sure that most of you have been aware of the terrible devastation that we've seen on our television screens in this, uh, in this last week. But just so that we have context this morning, we're just going to watch a, a short clip from BBC News, and then I'll come back and talk to you. Thank you. A huge rescue operation is underway. 
We're on the first flight into one of the most remote regions of Nepal. The geological forces that are raising up the Himalayas have wreaked a terrible destruction here. These are some of the most remote communities in Nepal, right up on the border with China, right at the epicenter of the second earthquake. Isolated communities like this are the least able to cope. We are starving and have nothing. Some of our villages have no water. There are dead bodies just lying around. We can't even burn them. Those that can hobble to the helicopter. Others are carried. One severely injured old man is rushed in on a wheelbarrow. The death toll is already close to 4,000. As the rescue effort pushes out into these remote communities, it will only rise. Back at Kathmandu airport, the injured stream off the helicopters. She's saying her leg is broken. Oh, I'm sorry. The Himalayan village where these people live was destroyed by the earthquakes and the avalanches that followed them. Hundreds died, they told me. Among the dead were Western tourists. Two planes died and, uh, and one Serpa and two and two Porter for, uh, for uh, um, uh, carrying the yes, stuff. They all yes. died on the mountain. And total five. I'm now getting emotional. Yeah. Yeah, you, you just hang on. You just hang on. Oh, anyway, I'm glad I survived. As night falls, the rescue stops. But the helicopters will be back in the mountains. Justin Rolat, BBC News, Kathmandu. It's almost too heartbreaking to watch, isn't it? You know, I think that we've established in uh, recent weeks that most of human suffering is caused through humans' free will. And it's caused through man's inhumanity to man. And that's something I think that probably most of us would be able to grasp and understand, that we can see this around us in our world. But what of the question of natural disasters? What about earthquakes and tornadoes and tsunamis and crop failures which cause death? Doesn't God really care? Why doesn't he stop in and prevent them? And as I say, I don't think there is a harder question for us as Christians to ever address. And there's an element of mystery in this. And, um, and there always will be. But again, in trying to put these jigsaw pieces together to try to understand just a little bit more, and even before I start speaking about this this morning, I'm very aware that there are great big gaps, even in my own understanding. There are great big jigsaw pieces. There are whole sections which remain missing. But I believe that it's still very important for us as Christians because we are to love the Lord our God with all our hearts and our minds and we need to address at least recognizing that we haven't got full answers we need to address some of these issues first thing I would want to say is that we need to recognize that even with natural disasters there is often a human element and often a human element following the terrible earthquake in Mexico in 1985 the Times newspaper wrote that among the reason for the disaster was 
second-rate workmanship, skimping on construction materials. There's wide agreement that many buildings need not have fallen and that many lives could have been saved had some builders been more scrupulous. Probably the strongest lesson from the Mexico City disaster is that good architecture works. And that's from the Times in 1985. And I discovered when looking into this subject this week that there's a whole field of engineering, which I, I, I wasn't even aware of, called earthquake engineering, which is concerned with structuring buildings to withstand earthquakes. That begs the question, why are some places in this world like Kathmandu missing out on this technology? That was my question when I read about this. I also read an article entitled, Earthquakes Don't Kill People, Buildings Do. And the article started off by saying that last Saturday's earthquake in Kathmandu may have caught Nepal off guard, but that doesn't mean it came as a surprise. Catch that. It caught them off guard, but it doesn't mean that it came as a surprise. You see, many ex experts expected this to happen. Because of where Kathmandu falls, it falls along fault lines. But Kathmandu, unlike cities such as Los Angeles, is filled with buildings that are not made to withstand an earthquake. So this kind of devastation was actually expected, and the experts knew that it would eventually happen. I read of one guy called Yanis Rogers, who was a structural engineer with a non-profit engineering company that goes into developing countries with his company to earthquake-proof their infrastructure. And this is what he says. Seeing modern vulnerable construction go up without engineering input, building codes, or thought to earthquake design made a lot of people very worried. And the, very pe the people that were very worried that he's speaking of are people who are experts in this particular field of earthquake engineering. He continues in this article to say that Kathmandu isn't uh, unique, that similar devastation could happen at any time in Mexico City or in Istanbul, because they again are two incredibly poor cities built on or near fault lines, and they have substandard buildings. The point that he makes is essentially that of economics. He says that the technology is available to earthquake-proof buildings. And if there was sufficient foreign investment into developing countries like Nepal, such catastrophes as we have seen in the last week simply wouldn't happen. Like many of you, I went to the Hustings meeting the other evening to hear the prospective parliamentary candidates answer questions on a whole range of subjects. And one of the questions that was asked the five who were taking part was related to foreign, or foreign aid. And one candidate said that her party, should they get to power, and there's no likelihood of that, <laughs> I won't tell you which party, <laughs> that if they ever came to power, they would reduce the foreign aid budget from 11 billion down to 2 billion a year, which certainly brought a few gasps of 
disbelief from around where I was sitting. And I thought to myself, and please, I'm not into politics in, uh, you know, I'm apolitical in what I'm saying. That was a most disgusting, disgusting thought. You see, these tragedies could so easily be avoided. I don't know if you knew this, but 21,000 children die each day from malnutrition and contaminated drinking water. It's easy to say 21,000, isn't it? 21,000. But 21,000, what does that equate to? That, I think, and I'm there or thereabouts, equates to the number of children in Tamworth. All of them. In one day. And then we're talking of tomorrow, then the next day, then the next day, then the next day, then the next day, ad infinitum. 21,000. Thousands of people around our world die through hunger, and yet the world has far more than enough food for everyone to be fed on the planet. And so often it's corrupt rulers who spend millions on lavish premises or on military equipment while their people starve. The world produces one and a half times enough food to feed everyone on the planet. There are seven billion people living on the planet. The earth provides enough food for 10 billion people to be fed. And yet, and this is even more shocking, 16% of the world's population, less than one in five, is consuming 80%, 80% of its natural resources. Put that the other way around, and it's even more stark, more poignant. 84% of the world's population, that's more than four in five people, lives on 20% of the world's resources, on one-fifth. Now, to me at least, that seems utterly unreasonable to blame God for our own unwillingness as human beings to act responsibly in giving and through supporting the poorest people on the planet. Would you agree with me? This is an exceptionally difficult subject this morning. And my first point is that... Some human suffering caused through natural disasters, earthquakes, famines and the like, has a human element to it. But I think that we can't just stop there. We need to now ask another question. Why are there earthquakes and natural disasters at all in a world which is created by God who is omnipotent? As I said, there are many different approaches to this very difficult subject. I've delved in just now to the economic side of things. Well, let me leave the economics for a moment and just come to the theological side. Because it's only really theology that could answer this particular question. We need to say that God is not the creator of evil and suffering. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 tells us that God saw all he had made and it was very good. Very good. We said earlier that God created mankind with a free will. We had a free will to love him or not to love him, and we chose not. And we rejected God's love, turned away from him. We chose to be abusive and arrogant and selfish and hateful and uncaring. In a sense, humans told God to shove off. 
And God partially honoured our request. And in doing so, nature was, began to revolt. Genetic disease and breakdown, breakdown and disease began. Pain and death became a part of our human experience. And I'm sure that we would all agree that our world is in a state of decay. And I was thinking how best I could illustrate this to you. And forgive me, I, I, I have shared this with you on one occasion previously, but it's worth while just using this illustration again. It's the story of what happened on the 26th of April in 1986. And that was when the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine exploded. Large quantities of radioactive particles uh, spread into the atmosphere and spread much over um, the Western Soviet Union and over Europe. The Chernobyl disaster has often been regarded as the worst nuclear plant disaster in history. And apart from the deaths that were caused there and then when it exploded, there have been many long-term effects to that disaster. Cancers, especially thyroid cancer, deformities in children born, um, born in proximity to that nuclear um, plant accident. Or perhaps parents who were affected by that later having children. The nuclear fallout to Chernobyl, it affected everything. It affected rivers and reservoirs and lakes and flora and fauna and food chain. And now 29 years on from that, the explosion still makes its deadly impact on that part of the world. Just park that there for a moment. Just think of that nuclear explosion. Well, the Bible tells us that there is another kind of explosion, a spiritual explosion that makes Chernobyl pale into insignificance um, when human beings rebelled against God. The devastating fallout affected all of the universe. The world which was perfect became imperfect. Human beings were affected by sickness and disease and death. The whole of the cosmos was affected by what we call... And, uh, sorry, it was... The whole cosmos was affected by this. And the things that we call natural disasters, earthquakes and the like, they are really symptoms of the malfunctioning of this universe. Malfunction of the creation with its creator. And just like Chernobyl, where that devastation continues, carries on, causing misery and and destruction in our world today, so too with this spiritual explosion. And as many of us know, many of us who are Christians will know that this is found in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And it's funny really, you know, Genesis, I, I talk to many people who are really confused by this book. You know, how do we um, approach this book, you know, and all this stuff that we read about fruit trees and fig leaves and talking snakes and missing ribs and playing hide and seek in the garden. And I believe that many people take some of this far too literally. And in doing so, actually miss out on the message, God's message, that we have in the book of Genesis. You know, these early chapters of Genesis are a part of a, an ancient narrative. And they're an amazing metaphor of some astonishing truths that God wants us to know. You know, when we start taking Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 as some kind of pseudo-scientific statement, then we can actually miss out 
on what Genesis is teaching us. Because Genesis has some incredibly important lessons. That God created the world in which we live from nothing. That God created human beings in his own image and likeness. That God created human beings as the pinnacle of creation. And we were given responsibility, are given responsibility for the world in which we live. But those human beings rebelled against God. And we are responsible for this downward spiral. A spiritual Chernobyl happened. But we need to understand that the world that God had created was a world which was very good. But because of our rebellion, the world has gone into decay and death. And Paul writes in Romans 8.22, and we read it together earlier, For we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Do you think that's a good description of our planet? The groaning planet. I think that's a very, very good description but Paul tells us it isn't always going to be that, like that. A pregnant mother-to-be groans in childbirth. But when the baby is born, the groaning turns into joy. And Paul tells us that our planet is just like that mother-to-be. It has been groaning for some time now. But for the planet in which we live, there is coming a day... When the groaning will turn into joy. A time when God will eradicate suffering and earthquakes and tsunamis and famine. And renew this groaning planet. There's coming a day when all things will be redeemed. When the planet will be redeemed. When there will be new heavens and a new earth. And that means that the suffering that we experience in this life. Whether it's through our sin through the sins of others, through what we call natural disasters, is only temporary. And our suffering will pale into insignificance compared to what God has in store for us. You know, I really think that it helps to take a long-term perspective in all of this. The Apostle Paul, we know all that he went through. He went through a terrible amount of suffering in his life, through beatings and shipwrecks and all the rest rejection and hunger and probably he went through far more pain than most of us will ever have to endure and yet he refers to that in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17 as our light and momentary troubles <laughs> just catch that you know what he went through and yet he refers to it as our light and momentary troubles if you look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul tells of the hardship that he went through. Five occasions, his back was shredded when he was flogged with 39 lashes of the whip. On three times, he was beaten with poles, with rods. Once, he was stoned. Three times, he was shipwrecked. On one occasion, he spent all night and all day in the open sea. He faced dangers from rivers and robbers. He was hungry. He was thirsty. There were many times he didn't have enough clothes to keep him warm. But he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The balance. This life, the life to come. In Romans chapter 8 verse 18 he wrote, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. 
So some people might say, well, if God has the power to eradicate evil and suffering, why doesn't God do it? And I would say, just because God hasn't done it yet, doesn't mean that he's not going to do it. It would be like criticizing him, uh, or rather criticizing him would be just like, um, um, how can I put it? Reading half a novel and then criticizing the author for not tying the, the plot together. That's what it would be like. There's coming a day when God himself will redress the balances of this world. And that's what the Bible teaches. And I believe, and I was saying to someone earlier on, that without the balancing of the books, I don't think that you can make suffering, a sense of suffering at all, or sense of death at all. I love what former Anglican Bishop Tom Wright says in his book, Surprised by Hope. It's a great quote, this. God's coming judgment is a good thing. <coughs> Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy and indeed the trees of the field to clap their hands. In a world of systematic injustice, <coughs> bullying, violence, arrogance and oppression, the thought that there might be coming a day when the wicked are finally put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. Again, if there was no promise of eternal glory and suffering and death would not make any sense whatsoever. <coughs> Let me illustrate this to you another way. Just imagine on the very first day, January the 1st, 2015, you had a terrible day. You had a painful root canal at the dentist. You crashed the car. A family member contracted some awful disease. You learned out on that day that you failed your exams. A friend betrayed you. From start to finish, it was a terrible day, was January the 1st, 2015. But then every other day, for the rest of the year, they were absolutely brilliant. You win five, five million pounds on the uh, European lottery. And after giving your gift to the church, you can take two million pounds away for yourself. <laughs> I live in hope. You get promoted at work to your dream job. And if you're single, the person of your dreams you meet, he or she falls in love with you and you fall in love with them madly. You get married, your marriage is idyllic, your health is fabulous and you have a three-month holiday in the Seychelles. Next New Year's Day, on the 1st of January 2016, someone says to you, how was 2015? And you say, hey, it was great, it was wonderful, what a great year. <coughs> but that person then says to you, but don't you remember January the 1st, one year ago? Didn't it start badly? You seem to have gone through a lot of trouble on that day. And you think for a moment, and you scratch your head, and say, oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. That was a pretty bad day, wasn't it? That was actually terrible. But I've forgotten that because of the totality of the year. The other 364 days were terrific, 
and they totally outweigh that one bad day. It just sort of fades away in my memory. <clears throat> and it will be the same in heaven. That obviously isn't to deny the reality of suffering in people's lives. That suffering might be terrible. It may be chronic. It may last for 72 years or 92 years. But in heaven, after 54,484,545 days of pure bliss and with infinitely more to come, if someone asked you, so how has your existence been? You would probably say, it's been absolutely wonderful. Words can't describe the joy and the delight and the fulfillment I've known. Let me quote another former Anglican bishop. I'm quoting Anglican bishops this morning. Former bishop of Maidstone, Gavin Reed, tells a story of meeting a young man who had fallen down stairs at the age of one and he had shattered his, his, his back in and out of hospitals all through his life. And uh, this young man made an astounding comment that he thought that God was fair. Bishop Reed asked him, how old are you? The boy answered, 17. How long have you been in hospital in your life? About 13 years, said the boy. And Gavin Reed responded, and you think that God is fair? And the boy replied, but God has got all of eternity to make it up to me. And he will. He will. I believe passionately that that is such an important message that Christianity brings to our world. The world doesn't make an awful lot of sense without this message. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And I think I'll finish there. A couple of pieces perhaps this morning, a couple of other small jigsaw pieces. I know, I'm very conscious, you don't need to make me aware of it. There are still many m missing jigsaw pieces in this puzzle. And as I was thinking this week of the earthquake in Nepal, I'm reminded a little bit of the cartoon that I once saw. <clears throat> in this cartoon there are two turtles speaking to each other. And one turtle says, sometimes I'd like to ask God, ask why God allows Poverty, famine, injustice, when he could do something about it. And the other turtle says, I'm afraid that God might ask me the same question. Actually, I think the answers to the cause of such devastation might not be that important to us in the bigger picture. And maybe what is really important is how we react to it how we react to natural disasters, how we react to suffering in our own lives and the suffering in the lives of those around us, which is really where I want to conclude this morning. And I want us to respond in two ways just now. I want us to respond by prayer. And I would like us also to respond um, by giving an offering to the relief effort. And at this point, I'm just going to hand over to Dan. Dan.